Well, good morning again, friends. I've uh, entitled this sermon this morning before Governors and Kings. And as uh, Alex already alluded to, Paul will be before governors and kings. Uh, Some of this is not new for him, uh, but he has this opportunity before uh, maybe not the largest crowd, uh, but but maybe the most uh, prestigious crowd. And so I wanted to tell you a story, and there are so many stories throughout history that that parallel this kind of experience. But I want to tell you about one man, Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was a Christian bishop and preacher. He lived in the 15th and 16th centuries. You can see by the picture, he uh, is not a recent photo. Uh, But he lived in the 15th and 16th centuries in England. Uh, Now, Hugh Latimer eventually died for his faith. He was uh, burned at the stake for heresy, uh, for supposed false teaching. Now, his teaching was only determined to be false because it was counter to some of the Roman Catholic teaching. And Latimer was not afraid to call things as he saw them when they were counter to what is taught in Scripture. And he wasn't, uh, this also caused him some, some grief and some trials, but he wasn't afraid of offending uh, even the monarchy. He wasn't afraid to call out the king himself. And so on one occasion, King Henry VIII demanded an apology for something that uh, Latimer had preached in his uh, most recent sermon. He demanded an apology and a clarification on what he had preached. And so rather than recanting the statement, Latimer took the opportunity to just read uh, the same text and preach the exact same sermon to the king and to whoever would listen in his trial. Now this takes some serious courage. Now that specific instance was long before he was eventually before he died for his faith. But still, that takes serious courage to be before governors and kings. But Jesus told his followers that this would happen. This isn't a surprise. In Matthew 10, 17 through 20, it says this, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak of what you are to, or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And so Jesus was with Latimer in that moment, and he's with so many others who faced intense persecution and faced genuinely precarious situations. Uh, Months back, we looked at Stephen. We looked at Stephen in the book of Acts, who was seized for being a Christian, and he took his last moments to preach the gospel. He preached to those who eventually would murder him, and he even asked God to forgive them for what they were doing. And so one of those present at Stephen's, uh, you wouldn't even call it a trial, Stephen's last speech and Stephen's final moments was the Apostle Paul before he was a Christian. Paul, uh, we've looked at through the book of Acts, it says he approved of this murder. But as we've seen, God has transformed Paul. He has transformed Paul into a faithful servant whose life is now dedicated to serving God and to sharing the good news for all to hear. And so as usual, as, as of uh, what we've been recently, Paul is the main uh, character, or central character this morning. 
as we go through our passage. And here we see him dragged before governors and kings, and he courageously and faithfully proclaims the gospel for all to hear. Now, when I say gospel, maybe different people are thinking of different things in their mind. When I say gospel, well, the gospel means good news. And so our big idea this morning, it's a little bit cheeky, but it's this. The good news is good news. That may seem painfully obvious, but I think it's something to to think about a little bit. You know, what is so good about the good news? Well, the good news is in itself good. And so we have a big portion of scripture to get through this morning, two whole chapters. You may say, Aaron, why do you keep doing this to yourself and to us? But we're we're taking it on two chapters. It's all one big story, but we're going to drill down at the end on five truths, five truths of the good news on why it's good uh, and the good news that Paul proclaims. So Paul does not waste an opportunity or an audience, as we've seen. And so if you aren't a Christian and you are tuning in this morning, uh, maybe your question is, what is so good about the good news? Well, you picked a great morning to join us. Uh, I say that every time, but you picked a good morning because we'll be just exploring really at its, its simplest level what is so good about the good news. And if you are a Christian and you're joining us, I hope you are encouraged by Paul's example. You know, he lives out the truth of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, that he will be with us when we must make a defense for our faith. And so I hope, too, you are encouraged by the rich truths of the gospel. Remember, we don't graduate from the gospel. The gospel isn't something you need for salvation and you move beyond. Remember, the good news is good news. It's really the best news in the world. And so, without further ado, let's dive in. So we got a lot. I'm going to pretty much read through the whole passage, uh, stopping a few points along the way, and uh, then we'll make those uh, five observations at the end. So let's read uh, to start Acts 25, 1 through 6. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking for a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him along the way. Deja vu. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. All right, and so, so far we see uh, this guy named Festus replaces Felix. Now, we saw Felix was a wicked and incompetent governor. Uh, He eventually was removed from his role, and so now Festus has replaced him. And he gets to work right away. He's like, all right, you know, give me the docket. What what did Felix fall behind on? What's been going on? And so he says, let's figure out what the situation with Paul is all about. You've had this guy in prison for a couple years. Let's figure this out. And so those that wanted to kill Paul uh, Paul way back when say, hey, let's try the same tactic. You know, let's get him on the move, and we'll kill him along the way. Let's get Paul transferred. Now Festus says instead, no. Come with me, we'll go to him, and we'll see if this guy's guilty, if you have uh, legitimate charges against him. And so let's read on. Verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. 
Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, so he's a little bit like Felix, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus said, uh, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so Paul makes uh, his brief defense. Uh, this is what we've looked at the last number of weeks. He says, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything against the law of the Jews, the temple, or against Rome. And so Paul, as a Roman citizen, he deserves a fair trial. I mean, as a human, he deserves a fair trial. But in this instance, he's a Roman citizen. And so he can make an appeal to go before Caesar. And so Festus does his best. He tries to offload Paul to Jerusalem. But Paul says, as we've seen, been there, done that. Even if there wasn't an assassination attempt waiting for him, uh, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem has proven over and over to ignore evidence and unlawfully treat Paul. They have an agenda, an agenda to shut down Christianity. And so this appeal was made to Caesar. Now, Caesar is a family name. Uh, so talking about the Roman emperor, and the Roman emperor at the time was Emperor Nero. Now, that may ring some bells for any historians out there. Uh, Nero would later demonstrate serious persecution against Christians and would later be known uh, throughout history as a bit of a lunatic. And by a bit of a lunatic, he was a madman. But at this point, early in his reign, he was relatively respected. And so there might have been some things going off in people's ears. The early original audience who would have read this, they would have said, I would, you know, that must have been pretty bad, Paul's prospects in Jerusalem, to want to go to Nero. Uh, but it wasn't uh, the Nero that maybe we all remember through history. And so reading on, now... When some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, King Agrippa was part of the Herod family. And so looking back, a couple Herods, we, we've gone over this before, but Herod the Great, uh, he was the one that uh, was responsible for the massacre of babies in an effort to kill the baby Jesus. Uh, his son, Herod Antipas, was the one who had John the Baptist killed and was part of Jesus' trial. The next Herod we hear about is his nephew, Herod Agrippa I, so that's who we've run into in Acts so far, who was responsible for the arrest of the Apostle Peter and the execution of James. And so now we're down to the next Herod, Herod Agrippa II, uh, and that's who we run into today, uh, along with his sister, Bernice. So it's a pretty messed up uh, you know, family tree that he's going along with, and it doesn't stop there. It is widely assumed and known, even from extra-biblical sources, that... Uh, this relationship, this brother-sister relationship, was a little bit more complicated between uh, Herod Agrippa II and Bernice, uh, with, again, widely assumed uh, incestual relationship between them. But here we see Festus take advantage of Herod Agrippa being in town. He says, hey, you know both Jewish customs and you know Roman law. And so let's you know, bring you in for a second opinion on Paul's situation. Now, Paul's appealed to Caesar. They're not ruling here. They just are trying to gather evidence, gather information. And so, 
Let's continue reading. The stage is set. Now, uh, no, verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appeared to be kept in custody for, custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems reasonable, uh, it seems to me re unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so, again, that now the stage is set. Paul is brought before governors and kings. Uh, those, they, they come with great pomp. We can picture the scene, elegantly dressed military officials, the king in his purple attire and jewels, Festus in his scarlet robe, quite the audience. And then in comes lowly Paul, a prisoner. He's brought to this event. The stakes and the tension are high. So let's read on. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain 
as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, pause there for a second. A goad is a stick that was used to prod livestock. And so that expression that we see in verse 14 uh, is essentially, why are you resisting God's will? Why are you resisting God's will? And so we hear the story of Paul uh, confronted with Jesus himself. Right? And we see uh, in verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is commissioned. He's uh, confronted by Jesus and he's commissioned to take this message of forgiveness of sins to all people, including Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. So as we continue reading verse 19, right to the end. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light, uh, light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said it with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? 
Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So how do we make sense of that last bit? We'll, we'll go through more here, but that last bit, we may be tempted to think, man, Paul blew it. He could have been free, but he appealed to Caesar. Well, if you've been tracking with us so far, and even from Paul's own words, Paul's mission is not self-preservation. His, his only aim is not just to stay alive. He is on mission to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. In this case, uh, as we saw a couple weeks ago, He's been commissioned to, to take this same message that he's proclaimed all the way to Rome. Right? And so along the way, every step of the way, Paul takes every opportunity to preach the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. So I said we would drill down on the, the good news. What's so good about the good news? Well, the good news is good news. And so what does Paul, through this passage, through these chapters, have to say about the good news? Well, first of all, and this is our first point, the good news is that Jesus died and rose again. The good news is that Jesus died and rose again. This is the good news itself, that all people were separated from God, from Adam and Eve in the garden all the way up to us today. We have all wronged God. We've rebelled against him. We have decided that we should run the show, that we should be like God rather than trusting in him and his way. So what does this mean? Well, sin and good works is not like gold stars that we get for our good deeds and demerit points for our sins. But like a drop of poison in a glass of water, it poisons the whole thing. And so sin ruins us. Sin ruins us. God is totally perfect, and we are totally not perfect. And the punishment for this sin, for this act of rebellion against God is death. But that's not the end of the story. God sent his own son, Jesus, into the world to live a life just like ours as a human, yet nothing like ours because he never sinned. He lived a perfect, sinless life, yet he suffered and died in our place. He took the penalty for our sin. He made a way for us to be made right with God, crediting his righteousness to us in exchange for our wrongs. And he rose from the dead. That is a bold claim. That is a bold, Jesus rose from the dead. Don't brush over that. Festus didn't, right? Early in his question, he said, uh, at certain points of disagreement about him and their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's a big claim. But Jesus did rise again. And he demonstrated that the penalty had been paid for. And so just as he was made alive, we would be made alive too. We were spiritually dead in our sin. But we could be made alive with Christ. Right? 26 verse 23, that the Christ must suffer, die, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light, uh, light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul doesn't cruise past this, and neither should we. 
when we consider why the good news is good news. The good news is good news because Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Now, this wasn't a blindside move. This wasn't a curveball. This wasn't out of left field. This was a big claim, but we see our next point, that the good news is fulfillment of promises. Good news is fulfillment of promises. Chapter 26, verse 6 and 7. Paul says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews. In verse 22, I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So this isn't new information. Paul is being accused by the Jewish religious leaders. And Paul's whole thing is saying Jesus is the hope that your ancestors were promised, the hope that you're hoping for. The Old Testament writers were pointing to him. And Paul's saying, I'm not saying anything new. There's new developments, sure, a.k.a. fulfillment to these promises. But the good news is fulfillment of promises that Jesus came as a suffering servant to die and rise again. Israel's hope is that God would save his people and raise the dead. And so Paul points to the irony here that those accusing him are waiting for this hope, yet he's on trial for proclaiming that Jesus is the one that came to fulfill that hope. And so he says to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, who's a Jew, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Right, so he's saying, you believe the prophets? Yes. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Paul doesn't leave things up to question. He says, the good news is fulfillment of promises. But Paul also knows his audience is more broad than just a Jewish audience here. He doesn't leave things only in the past or only relevant to a Jewish audience. He also says that the good news is reasonable. So the good news is fulfillment of promises, but the good news is also reasonable. So to the Jews, he says it's reasonable. Those that believe in God, he says, you believe in God who has proven himself throughout history to be God and made promises that he will redeem his people. And so he makes a pretty stark claim in uh, 26 verse 8. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? But we see the audience is not only Jewish here. Right? We see Festus. He's not a Jew. This is all new to him. And he says effectively in verse 24, Paul, you're nuts. Right? You're out of your mind. A Christian, you may have had a similar experience in your own life. How would you respond when someone calls you crazy, when someone calls you out of your mind? How do you respond when coworkers, family, friends call you crazy for believing in this? It's easy to get defensive. It's easy to snap and kind of add fuel to the fire of being called crazy. Right? Do you find uh, fight insult with insult? Condescension with condescension? Paul doesn't respond in that way. He says, verse 25, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. I'm speaking true and rational words. Paul told his story. He told his story, and it's an incredible story. But he talks about undeniable things. Right? He says, these people knew me. Right? I love that he talks about that uh, in verse 4. 
My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. It's like, man, these were my school buddies. They, they know the way I was. He tells his story. These people knew me. He says, I was in a raging fury. I was pursuing, arresting, and killing Christians. Now I'm not. Something changed. Now I'm dedicating my life to making Jesus known. Even though I used to shut that message down, I used to put people on trial for this. Now I'm the one that's on trial. And so something happened. It's undeniable whether uh, the claims he made, you could call them crazy, but it's undeniable. Now what happened? He tells his story. He says there were eyewitnesses. So Festus can deny whatever he wants or call Paul crazy. But Paul was changed, and that was undeniable. To me, that's a really interesting part of this account of the early church. You can say that these guys were nuts. You can say these guys were crazy. You can say whatever you want, but their lives were changed. That is undeniable. And it wasn't changed for, in any way, selfish gain. It wasn't changed that they could gain money or success. They were changed so much that they would now dedicate their lives to proclaiming that Jesus died and rose again for sinners. Charles Colson, you may or may not be familiar with that name, Charles Colson, he went to prison for seven months for obstructing ju- uh, justice in the Watergate scandal in the 70s. He was Richard Nixon's hatchet man. He later became a Christian. Whether you know anything about the Watergate scandal or not, I love this quote from a man who understands this. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And so as we considered time and time again through the book of Acts, an encounter with this news is an encounter with Jesus, and an encounter with Jesus changes everything. And so if you aren't a Christian and you're tuning in and you're thinking, you're crazy, man, that's okay. But what I say to you is what Paul says. I am speaking true and rational words. Investigate these claims. I have a ton of respect for the fact that you are listening right now, that you've stuck it out this long even. But don't stop. How could a message like this change everything about a person? And not just somebody 2,000 years ago, like Paul, as it's an incredible story, but I would love to introduce you to dozens of people, even at this church alone, who have had their lives absolutely transformed by the good news. Because it is good news, good news that is reasonable, and good news that has changed their lives. And so, uh, even as another thing, for the kids that are still holding on and still listening, if your parents are Christians, maybe over lunch today, you can ask them about their story. How did they encounter the good news? How did they encounter Jesus? And how did that change their life? So again, we see this good news is reasonable. And deep down, we see that this good news is hope for sinners. 
This good news is hope for sinners. This is not simply intellectual trumping, but because the good news is more than rational, it is hope for sinners. Now, you may cringe at that language. You may be saying, who are you calling a sinner? I'm calling all of us sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the news is equally bad for everybody apart from the gospel. But the news is equally great for those who, as Paul says in 26.20, repent and turn to God. So this is the call. Consider the good news that Jesus died and rose again. Consider that these truths are rooted in history. Read the Old Testament. Consider redemptive history. Consider how page after page we see promises made, and then Jesus comes and we see promises kept. Consider the good news. Investigate. Investigate. It is reasonable. And consider that there is an unshakable hope, an unshakable hope and a solution to the biggest problem in the world. And respond. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Trust him with your whole life. Give up trying to earn your salvation. God holds out an offer to you beyond comprehension that you can be forgiven and that you can have eternal life. John Stott says that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but the uh, essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Isaac Watts pens this in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, with these lines, the final verse, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so our response to considering Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, his love so amazing, so divine, it demands our soul, our life, our all. And so this hope can be for you. It's not a selective message. This is hope for all. It is a message for all. So the good news is hope for sinners. The good news is a message for all. What, this is what gets Paul into so much trouble. Right? He's preaching salvation for all people, regardless of social status. In verse 20, he says, whether small or great or ethnicity. In verse 23, he says, our people, Jews or Gentiles. So whether social status or ethnicity, this is a message for all people. And this isn't a new theme in the book of Acts. We see that this is really the mission statement at the beginning of the book of Acts, that the, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, beyond city, province, region, race. But we do a pretty good job of getting this wrong, even still today. But we can't forget that the good news is good news for all people. This is a good news that, that goes beyond uh, and stretches into eternity, a hope that is anchored in redemption. And not like a momentary redemption, a permanent, no condemnation kind of redemption for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so whether you are a Christian or not, you may be in a valley right now, and I would encourage you to drill deep into this hope. Whether this is the first time you've heard this good news or the 500th time that you've considered it, if you haven't, respond by repenting and believing. Turn to God Give him your all. Right, this grace is a grace too deep to fathom. 
right? a prize that is incomprehensible. It's an unshakable hope. And so does this mean that all of your problems will go away? No. But the chains of sin, the biggest problem in your life, will be taken care of. So center on this gospel. Center on this hope for salvation. Center on this gospel as you share that hope with others. And center on this gospel when you, Christian, need to defend these truths, whether it is in front of governors and kings or whether it's in front of your neighbors, your family, and your friends. I love that at the end, Agrippa is effectively saying to Paul, what, are you trying to make me a Christian? Verse 28 and 29. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul is standing in the midst of a powerful group of people, right? They came in with great pomp. But Paul is saying that he's in a better spot than them. He has found the pearl of great price. Sure, he's in chains, but they are in bondage to sin. You know, sure, he's going to spend the rest of his life on earth in captivity, but their eternity is in captivity. He says, this is a reasonable faith. And it's reasonable. Of course, it would be reasonable that I would want you to become as I am. I have good news that is good news for a lot of reasons. Good news that Jesus died and rose again. Good news that is anchored in history and promises made. Good news that is reasonable. Good news that is hope for sinners, all sinners, no matter status or race. J.C. Ryle writes this. I love this little quote. He says, Happy indeed is that church whose members not only desire to reach heaven themselves, but desire also to take others with them. We share the gospel because we love people. That's what Paul's doing. Of course, I'd want you to believe this. And to close on the hope that we can have in the good news, Johnny Erickson Tata says this, the best we can hope for in this life is a not whole peek at the shining realities ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which waits over the horizon. That is good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your glorious gospel that saves and transforms. We thank you for the gift of your son. God, by your help, we pray that you would help us all understand this. God, for those that have never responded, God, I pray that you would work in their heart to investigate these reasonable, anchored claims and that you would open their hearts to hear. And God, for the rest of us, please help us never get to a point where we are tired of hearing about this good news, tired of considering it. Help us to spend our days getting to know you more, plumbing the depths of this hope that we can have. God, help us that those days that come when we stand before governors or kings or family or friends or neighbors, that we would give a defense to the hope that we have. Thank you for the promise that you will be with us both now and forevermore.
We love you dearly. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.